in, in physiology, you're always playing a game, right? Um, you're playing a game of adaptation versus optimization. And those things are always counter to each other. So the thing that causes the most adaptation is not the thing that causes the most optimization in the moment, right? Um, whether your uh, inflammation is an easy example of this. If you minimized inflammation, you would die. If you maximize inflammation, you will die. Hi friends, in today's podcast episode, we're going to be diving deep into the world of exercise for longevity and how women's hormones can affect that. So you're going to be discovering all the things you should be doing to enhance not just your strength and power, but also your VO2 max and an often neglected aspect, which is balance. So to kind of find out everything you need to know about optimizing your fitness for longevity, tune in. I'm sitting down with Dr. Andy Galpin, who is a tenured full professor at California State University Fullerton. He's the co-director of the Center for Sport Performance and the founder of the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Laboratory. He's also a human performance scientist with a PhD in human bioenergetics and over 100 peer-reviewed publications and presentations. He's on a mission to enhance the human condition by providing the world with free and entertaining health, human performance and nutrition education. So without further delay, let's dive in. So I'm here today with Dr. Andy Galpin. I'm very excited to have you on the show, Andy. I've been looking forward to this after listening to your episodes with Dr. Peter Atier and Andrew Huberman, which go into a lot of detail on the science of longevity and improving fitness. Um, a very warm welcome to the show. No, great to be here. Uh, happy to finally connect here. Awesome. Um, let's kick off with the key areas that you would say for women to focus on when they're looking at increasing their health span uh, alongside their longevity? Sure. Well, I'd say initially, you want to hit the big markers, right? So people have talked quite extensively uh, about managing sleep, managing stress, nutrition, and physical activity, right? So if you jump out the gates and, and handle some four things like that, um, you're going to be in a good spot. I think we can probably dive a little bit deeper than that. And we could go into any one of those categories in more detail that you would like, but that's the, the big jump. Um, past that, women have particular needs to manage bone mineral density very specifically, uh, and then a handful of other items. So um, those are the big areas though. And so I'm happy to jump into any one in more detail if you'd like. Awesome. Let's look at um, fitness, first of all, um, in terms of women and exercise, because I think this is kind of becoming a little bit more nuanced recently, looking at the menstrual cycle and how that impacts things. And then obviously getting into perimenopause, it has its own unique set of challenges and then moving through into menopause. When we're looking, first of all, at women optimizing their fitness routines, for example, around the menstrual cycle, um, my understanding from looking at the, the limited research that's available is that women have a greater resilience in the first two weeks of the month. So in the follicular phase, right up to ovulation. Uh, and that seems to be a good time to take advantage of rising estrogen to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And that after that, as we move into the luteal phase and get closer towards menstruation, uh, it seems better to kind of pull back a little bit on things like the hip workouts. And I'm just curious uh, as to what your view and what the research you found says about this. Sure. So a lot of things to say on that topic. Well, a couple of them would be, one, uh, I would recommend checking out, we actually just had a podcast come out with Abby Smith-Ryan, 
who's a fantastic scientist at the University of North Carolina. And she is doing a ton of research on perimenopause training, specifically looking at high intensity interval training and a bunch of stuff, a long story career. Um, any of her stuff is great. And we just, again, had that podcast come out on Barbara Shrug and she goes into this stuff in detail. Secondly, uh, I would recommend checking out a couple of recent papers by my former student, uh, Lauren Colenso Semple. Um, and she's now finishing her PhD in protein metabolism. And she just came out with the literature review on this topic specifically. And then she actually has completed a couple of new studies um, that are in review right now. And so those are not out yet. And the reason I'm saying that is if you really want to deep dive into the state of the, the, the research and literature, those are the best places um, to go into it. I'll try to give you the more practitioner friendly version of those. But if you want to know more about you know, the details of the methodologies, um, see those uh, that review paper specifically by Lauren. Um, when, we, when you start this conversation, I think you have to understand and recognize the difference between science and application. And the reason I'm saying it is this. If we can find something to be true or not true as close as possible in science, there's still a leap you have to make there into application. And so you can have a couple of different philosophies and they're both correct. The specific example I give in this topic refers to, all right, you, you went out, you kind of started the question with a pretty detailed explanation of uh, exercise training variations throughout the menstrual cycle. Well, a lot to tease it. Some people can make the argument of there's potential benefit. There's enough indirect evidence. So the evidence, in my opinion, is not particularly strong, but there's some indirect evidence that everything you said there is true. And so therefore you can make the argument on average, many women um, would benefit to, to training around their menstrual cycle. Okay, on the same exact token, same exact data, you could say, well, yes, but also how practically challenging is that? Now I have to rearrange my work schedule. I have to rearrange my kid's schedule and I have to, and I'm gonna train differently based on all these things. That, that's complicated, right? There's no correct answer there because some people say, well, I don't really care how complicated it is, do the one that's better. And that's great. Some people say like, yo, it's so complicated. It actually drives adherence down too far. And so uh, it, it's, it's overly complicated and not justified by the, by the level of the science. Both of those answers are 100% correct. 100%. I can tell you right now in the coaching programs I have for all of our females, we do not train around their menstrual cycle at all. We don't do anything like that. And that's because the population we're with, it's not worth the change, at least again, the strength, the evidence that um, I have gone over, it's not strong enough of an impact to justify the other practical real world losses we would get and trying to program them like that. Other people may feel differently. They may say with the clients I have, the situation I have, the time I have, it's totally justified. And if it is potentially better, why not? Because mm -hmm. the reality of it is in my coaching practice, I make that choice sometimes too, where I say, look, it's either positive or neutral. But the people I work with, I don't care. I'll take that chance. I'm going to go do it. In this particular instance, I don't because of the females we work with. But I can absolutely understand when people say, yo, there's initial evidence there. And if it's potentially going to help my clients better, then I'm going to do it. So I think um, right out the gates, I sort of jumped into the practical application. And I went like I gave you the answer, my final answer first without running through the research. But that's why I think um, a lot of the argument in this particular question, it's nonsensical. Because you're setting up an, a false dichotomy that it's either you train around the menstrual cycle or you don't. Well, then the, the reality of it is like both of these are very viable options and they're for different reasons. And either way, as a practitioner or a person, 
you can make that choice and go, okay. Now dialing it back a little bit, if you're training around your menstrual cycle, that's assuming a couple of things. One, you have an extremely regular ovulation cycle. Now notice I didn't say menstrual cycle. I said ovulation cycle. That's not the same damn thing. So if some, some women obviously are extremely um, regular with their menstrual cycle every 28 days, right? Some are hyper irregular. So now you're talking about the practicality of adjusting your training based around your menstrual cycle and you don't even have a regular cycle. And so now what do you, what do you, how are you really actually applying this? That, that becomes really, really challenging. Secondly, even if you have a regular cycle, how do you know you're actually ovulating at day 14? One of the things we know clearly, clearly from research is that's not actually true. It's not true woman to woman. It's not true within a single woman in your ovulation cycle. So now what are you like chesting ovulation every single day, figuring out when you're flipping cycles and now like chaining it. And so one could argue like, yo, there's a lot of assumptions here, a mm -hmm. ton of assumptions going on that we actually know, again, scientifically, those assumptions are false. And you're using that to make a more complicated training system for what potential benefit? We don't really have a ton of evidence to suggest it's actually going to be do that much different. So that's why in general for our clients, the ones I work with, I don't do it. Now, having said that, there's a lot of cool research coming out on this stuff. We're going to learn a lot more in the next five years. And I have changed my tune many times in the past. I have been on this on topics and more and more of this came out and I'm going, okay, like switching. So I, I'm not hard on this one. I'm not super fast to go, yo, this is, it's not quackery. It, it's not even close to quackery. That's not, that's, that's very wrong to say it that way. But for me jumping in and going, yo, until like I know a woman's cycle better until we know their, their hormone um, profile better and whether we've done like a 30 day mapping or something, all the other ones, I don't, I don't really, we don't venture into it a lot. Um, if you're super into this stuff though, and especially you want to do it personally, I, I fully support it. And if someone did that and then came back and said, yo, I'm getting better results when I'm doing it this way, I would believe them. I'd be like, yeah, I fully believe it. That's really, that's really awesome. So it comes down to whether you're talking about broad application, you know, should women in general be doing this? versus you and your individual clients. And, and those can be different questions. So um, that's sort of my initial launch in your question. I'm not sure what follow-ups you want to take from there, but that's the basic Yeah, no, it's interesting. Is it when you say that you haven't done it with the athletes that you work with, because um, you talk, you mentioned obviously adherence there, but also like mm -hmm. in terms of the gains that you might make, have you seen that by slowing things down, for example, actually you may not see the same improvements in, in, in fitness, if you're having that level of disruption, because if you look at the work of kind of Dr. Stacey Sims, for example, who's been on the show a couple of times and her research suggested that actually by training around the menstrual cycle, the results are more optimal. So, so what curious. do you mean by slowing down things? As in, well, not so much slowing down things, but by not doing so much high intensity work, for example, in the luteal phase um, and focusing more on kind of high intensity strength training and more workouts sort of closer together in that early follicular phase. I'm just curious as to what you found your experience has been and, and why you've chosen not to optimize around it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any data on that. You said there's research on that. Not that I'm aware of. I think is, it's been used there? by some sports teams. Like my understanding is the U.S. soccer team have have used it a bit. Oh, oh yeah, um, oh yeah, Dr. sure. Stacey coaches, I'm Sims sure. I'm has... sure plenty of coaches have used it, but there's no. I don't. I don't know if there's any peer review data to support that. Which doesn't mean it's useless. By the way, I, I am not at all one of the scientists who says nor believes. Like if it's not peer reviewed, it means it's garbage. Absolutely not. So if if tons of practitioners are reporting that, like that that is equally important to me. That it's very valuable information. So. Yeah, um, 
again, we just we just haven't used it because it's not. Um, I don't think there. Now, I will. I will. What I can comment on is there is um, there is clear mm, performance decrement with excessive high intensity training. So if that's what you meant when you sort of say like slow people down at certain spots, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And one thing that's, that is also clear from the research is um, people who spend too much time at max heart rate or close to that are, are gonna have issues. So if you can pull somebody back from some of those things and replace it with other types of training and you see like the athletes report benefit, I, I would believe all those things. So um, that really comes down to, you know, again, individualizing the training for the individual person and getting better outcomes. I, I believe all that stuff. No question. Mm. That comes down more around the recovery and the strain of the individual as opposed to uh, changing things around the hormonal profile, for example. Yeah, totally. I mean, you should be coaching the person, right? Are you getting the results mm. you should be getting uh, or not? And what else is going on? So one of the things that we spend a lot of time with with all of the, the people, whether they're in their, you know, the rapid health and performance program, which is like our, our executive non-athlete one, uh, as well as our athletes, um, it is... It, the entire allostatic load should be accounted for, meaning we're paying attention to sleep. We're paying attention to psychological stressors. We're paying attention to nutrition. We're paying attention to hydration. We're doing tons of biomarkers, like 500 plus biomarkers, stool, urine, saliva, blood, et cetera. And so we're getting an extremely comprehensive uh, picture. We're not just picking one thing. So I'm not just looking at your HRV score. I'm not just looking at your sleep score. I'm not looking at one estrogen or anything like that. We're looking at everything. Um, to, to understand what's happening. And so I guess this is one of the reasons why like I'm not overtly concerned, things like that, because I get a huge comprehensive mm. picture of what the hell is going on. Um, we will often do, um, if we're having suboptimal results, I I'm going to see it. It's coming from somewhere. And whether I don't see it come from somewhere, I'm going to see it resulting in somewhere. And so um, now I realize and I'll grant you, our approach is not totally feasible. <laughs> They're not even close to feasible for, for many people. So you, you might want to do something simpler, like pick one or two things. But I guess maybe that's probably what explains a little bit of my approaches is because we're looking and monitoring so many things. It, it, it pops up, right? If you're not responding, if you're getting drugged to things, um, if, it, if it skips on HRV, it's fine. I'm going to pick it up somewhere else. Like if it, if it comes on um, some one part of sleep, I'm going to pick it up somewhere else. Um, we're going to mm -hmm. see everything because we are paying attention to that entire allostatic load. Detoxification is so important now more than ever with the number of toxins we are exposed to daily in our food, water, personal care products and environment. No matter how careful we are, it's impossible to totally get away from the chemicals. And we also have to think about detoxifying the toxins we produce through cellular respiration and clearing excess hormones like estrogen. Our skin is one of the key ways we detoxify, and that's why I love to include sauna as part of my weekly routine. But going to a facility with a sauna can be time-consuming, and investing in one yourself has been expensive in the past. That's why I love Bond Charge's sauna blanket. It has so many benefits, from raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise, so you burn calories whilst you relax. You can burn up to 600 calories in just one session. The sweating helps flush out heavy metals and other toxins, and the infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you, meaning you get the same benefits at a lower heat. Bond Charge's sauna blanket is easy to set up, taking less than a minute. It heats up rapidly and you can enjoy a session for 30 to 40 minutes whilst relaxing, reading, watching TV or even meditating. So you can truly stack your hacks. 
Boncharge's sauna blanket is also low EMF compared to other brands on the market, and it's the quickest on the market to heat up. So it's an easy thing to fit in. When I'm not working out in the morning, you'll find me meditating in my Boncharge sauna blanket with their red light therapy mask on my face, boosting collagen while I relax. And Boncharge are giving listeners of this podcast 20% off their sauna blankets, red light therapy devices, and other wellness products. Boncharge ship worldwide in rapid time with free shipping on every sauna blanket and 12 months warranty. Simply go to boncharge.com forward slash Angela and enter code Angela20 at checkout. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com forward slash A-N-G-E-L-A and use code Angela20 to save yourself 20%. So for someone listening to this who's training pretty hard, uh, if there were kind of five or 10 things that you would recommend as being the top things that they could track easily without going into hundreds of different biomarkers, what would be the key things that you would draw out for them to understand that allostatic load and whether their training is optimized? Yeah, there's a ton of ways you can go here. You can actually go to, um, it's funny, there's a ton of scientifically validated questionnaires for this question. And so you can actually pull up any of them. And some of them are as simple as a 10 question load. In fact, one of the things that, it, that you can see, and I have seen uh, probably close to 10 million data points on HRV, and you compare those against a straight up questionnaire of mood, and you will see the mood will track as well often or better than the HRV. Interesting. Um, and so you can use a very simple you know, one, two, three mood. So we worry out. Um, now this is also like, this is when people are blinded. So uh, in the aggregate, it'll line up pretty well. Um, the reason I said that is um, you can tailor this and you should tailor this to it. I use a lot of times with our athletes, an app called four app. This is an American baseball app um, for baseball players, but it's the reason I bring it up is it's a hyper simple interface and you go on there and you can log like, how's your nutrition? And nutrition is like, brown face they're like okay they're like happy face and you just scroll it like it's as simple as as that right and it's like what was your nutrition like yesterday what's your mood like how was your sleep are you happy like simple things like that can do it and you should probably tailor this list of five to ten by the way and i think probably the number is like six at most is what i would generally recommend to the people you're working with so pick a variable that makes more sense so in other words like um, one of the questions we'll ask our athletes a lot is like, how'd you play yesterday? Right. Um, that, that's, that's not something you make. All right. If you're not an athlete, take, take that question off your list. Um, put another one on of like, Hey, how was work yesterday? You know what I mean? So like change it up a little bit, but basically if you ask, how was your sleep, um, mind, body, hunger, soul, these kind of questions. Um, I don't think there's any particular magic. There's no like specific recipe because there are so many validated questionnaires that leave some of these questions off and everyone's on there that are going to show you it's going to predict it. Um, you, you can do that. So subjective ratings are, are strong. There's a very strong argument for adding in objective ones as well. And so what we typically do, and I'll teach um, all of our students, is have at least two objective and have at least two subjective. And so your objective measures can be something like HRV, which great, has a ton of research on it. It can be something like body weight. Now, it could be something like, how many times um, did you poop yesterday? Okay, great. Just getting a rough sense of what's going on. Um, so objective data are, are good. And then subjective ones are the ton of stuff that, that I measured. How do you feel? How recovered do you feel? 
how, what's your, you know, how much do you want to train today? What's your mood? How well did you sleep? In this case, it's actually a subjective indicator. Um, one of the things that we know is people's subjective uh, understanding of their sleep is awful. People have no idea how well they actually sleep or not, mm. but you're, so it's actually more of a reflection. It's not actually reflecting how well they slept, but it's generally more reflective of overall recovery. Um, it's quite interesting the, actually when you say that, because when you look at people's aura data, for example, or week data, they'll be like, I slept terribly, but then they look yeah. at it and actually I slept okay. And it, it can change. I, I have it sometimes, right? I look at it and I think totally. I slept terribly, but it's telling me we've read in the score is amazing and I'm primed for high strain. And then psychologically, no. you kind of start to change your view a little bit. No, we, um, I wrote a book like six years ago called Unplugged, um, all about fitness technologies. And so I can give you a quick summary here, but when we do our sleep analysis, we're running full, uh, full clinical grade sleep studies on people in their house, in their bedrooms. So we're not using uh, a wearable. We have a, you know, a full sleep study on, on them. And one of the things that we can see with that is their actual sleep. And then we compare that against their sleep perception. And I can't even tell you, Angela, I can't even tell you how bad people's sleep perception is, whether it's like, oh, it took me forever to fall asleep last night. And you're like, no, you were sleeping four minutes, right? Like, <laughs> I was up a hundred times last night. Not great. Like, I can vouch for that night. with my husband. <laughs> totally. Like they're so far yeah. off in their sleep perception. So, um, cause people comment that all the time. I'm like, yes, you're correct. That still, it doesn't mean it's not a good idea to ask them how bad their, or how their sleep was, because you're going to actually get a better indicator of overall recovery um, from that than you will. It's just, it, don't, don't worry about what the question is um, in their sleep. So yeah, that, that's not the best way to monitor. Um, and then lastly on this, one thing I did want to flag is be very, very, very careful changing what you do based on what any of those apps tell you. And so um, don't, if the apps pop up and say, Hey, you know, you should take a day off today. Don't do not ask your coach. If your coach says, take a day off, take a day off. But, but don't, if you're guiding your own ship here, you know, do what, what you want in there. Cause the perception um, of, of what's happening in those texts, is not like, they're not nearly as good as, as you may think they are. Mm -hmm. So do not, do not listen to those things. Um, some of the variables are great. Like aura is particularly, actually, I think aura is probably going to be able to, diagnose clinical sleep disorders in a number of years. I think they probably, my opinion is they're probably three to five years off from being that good. So these texts are getting way, way, way better at some things, but they're still truly terrible at other things. Um, so they are fantastic at, I may get into tons of details here, but um, the aura specifically is fantastic at a number of things, um, but they're, they're, they're still not at the level of telling you what to do with your training for a hundred reasons I could explain like, if you want, but that's the quick answer is don't do that. Like this is why you need a coach. Um, they will tell you, and this is why you need other metrics um, behind that. So use them for what they're good at, like your sleep patterns, you know, progressions over times, um, not your sleep staging. Don't worry about that stuff, but just, you know, where you sleep, what time, what time did you wake up when it comes to the overall recovery and strain and all those things, just, just ignore that stuff for the most part. Um, I'll give you a good example. Um, my family has the flu right now. My typical HRV and aura uh, is like a hundred or so. Now that's only one way to measure HRV and the aura actually will measure HRV as a rolling average overnight. Most HRV research and most practitioners of HRV are going to look at an aura or a, um, HRV in a single time point in the morning. So it's, it, we're already looking at completely different numbers, which is not to say that their numbers is wrong or bad, but it, it's a, it's a rolling average overnight rather than an instantaneous time point. So um, it's, it's now it's apples to oranges. It doesn't relate to anything. There's stuff going on there. 
So oh, great. The way that they measure it, the way they calculate it is also um, different than other, uh, like literally the math is different. And so you're just, you're just looking at totally different numbers. So don't, don't judge your health or anything else by your HRV score on something like an aura. You go to a whoop or something else, like you have other equally bad problems or a worse one. So just though, as the example runs, um, my HRV is typically around 100 or so on aura overnight. It's different on other ways to track it. Um, got the flu this weekend. And uh, I think Sunday I woke up and it was nine, right? So it was like 10% of normal. Uh, this is down there. But my readiness score was like 72%. Like, oh, oh, okay. So like, I'm still sitting, like no chance, like absolutely mm -hmm. no chance. So it's it just, um, there's, there's so many uh, assumptions that go into those scores on assumptions and assumptions and assumptions and assumptions. So don't look at that. I knew that I didn't, I, I shouldn't train. Like I felt terrible. I clearly had the flu. I wasn't going to train anyways, but like my HIV was 10% of normal. I, I got throttled down there. Okay, great. Today I wake up, my HRV is back to 75 and my readiness is up to like 77. Okay, great. I'm going to train such today. a curiously small difference in terms of the so readiness small. score versus the HRV. And that's because readiness and HRV are not the same thing, mm. right? And so what's the reason? Well, the previous night before I had uh, like four hours of total accumulated sleep. Last night, I got like eight plus hours. And so that the, the enhanced sleep, it moved the readiness score up that counteracted the drop in HRV. Um, but So what are whatever. the things when you're looking at those wearable devices then? I know, I think, I don't know if they still do, but I thought Whoop took it at a single point in time. And yet if I compare Whoop and Aura, they're almost the same. They're like pretty much every night they feed back the same score or within two of each other for me. Um, I'm curious as to what you think are the metrics that we can observe sensibly from these devices that might be helpful. Yeah, sure. Well, that's actually lucky that it does that. It's not always the case. In fact, okay. um, if, if and I have done this, and I do this almost every night uh, right now, I'll wear both those devices mm. uh, and two of them. So two aura rings. Okay. Right. Overnight. And you don't, oh, I don't get the same score. Okay. That's so interesting. Really? They're close. Yeah, they're close. Okay. But, the, okay. but they're not the same thing. Um, close enough for most people. Yeah. Close enough for science. No. Um, but like, whatever, you know, like uh, um, you're looking at like a, a 20 minute or so plus or minus margin on total amount of sleep time. This is one variable. Right. So some people are like, oh, it's in with 20, 20 minutes. I don't, I don't care. And that may be me. Other people may get tighter scores. You may be. It, it just depends because again, remember all they can, they can't really measure sleep. None of them can, right? Because all they can measure is they have infrared that they're going to shoot into your finger. That's going to bounce back. And then everything they're going to take is going to have to be a measurement of that. And so then they're going to say, okay, well, we know people that have this amount of actigraphy, which is like movement. Um, at this heart rate with O2 set, like, and then they're going to calculate that on top of that. Like, that's what I say when I say assumption on top of assumption on top of assumption. Mm. Now, the, their algorithms have so many data points that like, they get better and better and better. But you may notice that um, Aura just updated their, uh, I'll, I'll pull it up right now. We'll talk yeah, as an example. I have it. Aura, and I don't like it because my sleep never looks as good as it used to when I toggle it on. Well, it's, it's yeah. No, it's, okay. Yeah. So you notice they changed the beta, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I but, noticed it. So, but actually, so it it's closer to Whoop now because uh, I used to think Whoop was really harsh on me with sleep. And now when I toggle the beta on with Aura, it seems closer. Okay, yeah. So um, Whoop cannot even come close to doing sleep stages correctly. Not even is close. that because it's a risk measurement or for what reason? Or is the technology? N different? Number of reasons. 
Yeah, number of reasons. Um, and I, I, maybe I'll say this more plainly. Do not use any of these apps or tech to measure your sleep stages. Um, the closest, the newest version of Aura just came out and their newest paper came out and that is 86% accurate to PSG, right. right? Previously versions, you're talking 70% or so. Um, so 86%, okay, like again, it depends on how pedantic you wanna be. So for me, that's not accurate enough. Um, if you just wanna get like a rough idea, oh, okay, that's probably close enough. Um, but the question is, okay, with, with the sleep staging thing, great. Um, it depends on what your HRV looks like to, that will explain in, in, um, in my opinion, what happens to your sleep stages as you change over to the new algorithm, such that high HRV people tend to get massively overinflated deep sleep uh, on aura previously, right? Mm -hmm. And so you might've been told you're getting three hours of deep sleep or something. And then you switched over to beta and all of a sudden you're getting told you have an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah. Right. People that had low HRV had other problems. And so people that are low HRV even got the same amount or didn't change them. And that's because they, they changed the algorithm to determine it, it's more, uh, supposedly it's more accurate now at light sleep. All right. But nonetheless, your sleep, your sleep architecture, which is kind of like the phases you have in the timing is completely universally different, just the new algorithm. So that, what that tells you is what have you been using in the last five years? Yeah. Is it all garbage? Just like, then what's going to happen when they go to the next version? So you, like you're assuming, so you should just stop that assumption. You know that it's at best 86% accurate at sleep stages. And so like doing, using that much action as a coach or a person based on the sleep stages. Now, uh, or is the best. That's the one we use um, for a number of reasons, but you're still at best 86%. And so what can you get from them? You still have a ton of benefit. And so this sounds like I've been complaining about Aura. Not, I have a great relationship with Aura, by the way. I don't have any financial ties to them, but I, I love the people there. I have a great relationship with them. Um, it is fantastic at a number of things. It is fantastic at knowing when you're asleep. It's pretty darn good at that. And so if you want to just figure out total sleep time, if you want to be able to check in accountability between did your client go to sleep and wake up at the time, um, that is huge. If you want to check calibration, right? Uh, roughly understanding, like I'm not calibrated a good night's sleep or bad night's sleep. If you want to see changes over time, because they are fairly reliable, all good. I mean, there's a hundred good reasons to use Although those. to be fair, I've had clients who've been watching television and it's like, Aura says I was asleep and I was watching a movie and I never yeah, fell yeah. asleep. I remember the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happens a ton too. That happens to me almost every night. If you, if you stay in bed inactive, whether you're reading or talking to a spouse or doing breath work or meditating or something like that, It'll think you're asleep. You can actually just go to the bottom and change detail mm. really quickly. So if you know, you're like, yo, I said I was a, you know, asleep at 10, but I didn't go to bed till 1030. You'll see a whole big line of awake there and you just pull it over. And yeah, it's just adjust. slightly concerning though, if it thinks you're asleep yeah. when you're not. Do you know what I mean? Because that begets the question well, of again, how, it's, how accurate it's based it. on blood flow and activity. So if it notices your hand didn't move at all for 15 straight minutes, it's going to assume you're asleep, which most of the time is true. In this particular case, because you were just brewing breath work or something, like, well, yeah. I think it's off there. So, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, again, like any of these technologies, there is, there are benefits and there are, are, are consequences. So, are, are, there are limitations, I should say, rather than consequences. Um, where you need to, you know, as an individual person, use these things is understanding those limitations and still not outsourcing these technologies 
um, to your own physiology. And what I mean by that is use them to better understand yourself. Do not use them to control you and make your decisions for you. That's a really, really bad place to be in. They're not at that level yet. Um, they are at the level of getting you insights that you previously did not have, but they're not at the level of determining what you do every single day. So that I think is still, it's still worth the purchase price in my opinion for that, but you got to be careful there. Um, there are also, um, are you familiar with, um, orthosomnia? Orthosomnia, where people yeah. worry about sleeping and then they look at their data and they get even more anxious. Kind of a bit like uh, orthorexia, orthorexia, where you're worried about eating healthy food all the time. Yeah, so similar. This is um, a, a rising problem um, that is people are becoming more and more worried about is the fact that people are actually causing themselves sleep disorders because of sleep trackers. Right. And so a couple of things happen. You get too obsessed with the number and now you actually start um, you, you, for example, you're laying in bed wanting to get a higher score tomorrow. And so you're just like, come on, go to sleep, come on, go to sleep so I can get a higher score tomorrow. And then what do you think happens? <laughs> it's competitive. You're never going to sleep. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. another thing that happens is people get so excited to wake up and check their score in the morning. Um, sleep is very interesting. Sleep is, there's an anticipatory response to most things in physiology. Uh, this is actually one of the best things that your body can do is it starts to, it understands patterns and it'll, it'll start to anticipate, Hey, I eat at, you know, I eat lunch at one o'clock. So whether you're hungry or not at 1240, 1245, it'll start sending you signals to hunger, right? Despite no matter what you've done, even if you're full, it'll start sending those hungers because it's just anticipating the response, right? If it knows that you have a bad encounter with somebody every time you see them and you know that you see them every Thursday at three o'clock, two, two 30, you're going to start getting an raise in adrenaline, et cetera. Like it's going to know this thing happens, mm. right? And it's going to give you an anticipatory response. You go to, it's white coat syndrome. You go to the doctor's office, all these things, right? Well, waking up has the same thing. So if you wake up in the morning and check your phone, first thing, whether this is you check an email, whether you're checking your aura score, it'll start back calculating that 15 to 30 minutes prior to. So it'll start waking you up earlier in anticipation for your score. That's interesting. And so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like yeah. a huge, it's one of the reasons why people say like, do not check your phone first thing in the morning mm. is because if you have a big uptick in any of these things, right? You're supposed to have a giant rise in cortisol in the morning. That's the point, right? So you should have a huge cortisol spike. Um, but if you're having anything else happening or anything that's disrupting this, this normal hormonal milieu that's supposed to move and wake you up, then it'll start happening, making that happen 10, 15, 20, up to 30 minutes prior to. And you'll notice this super, super commonly with people who do that. They're just like, oh, I wake up before my alarm every day and I just can't get back to sleep. Oh, what mm -hmm. do you do? Grab your phone immediately. This is, exa it's exactly why. Yeah, like, that's right, so interesting. So stop doing that. You'll start sleeping longer. That's very interesting. Thinking about waking up in the morning and that cortisol uh, spike that comes on. I heard you talking about one of the podcasts I was listening to you around the fact that First of all, I know you're not a huge fan of just taking supplements and things for, for the sake mm. of it. You need to be very targeted with what you're taking. But you also mentioned, I believe, that you don't want to take anything that interferes with uh, the cortisol response adaptations in training. I'm curious as to what you think about things like ashwagandha, which is commonly taken by uh, many people at night for sleep. I've seen, seen like different research, some that says it helps improve performance in terms of fitness, but that seems to modulate uh, cortisol in some way. Um, it's also very common in sort of perimenopausal women because it can help with things like hot flashes. Can you give us the lowdown on ashwagandha and how it might impact performance uh, if, you're, if you're going for that early morning workout? Yeah. So ashwagandha is really cool, actually. Um, 
I say the same thing about rhodiola. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan. I've used rhodiola for a very long time. Um, that's that's we've just actually got momentous to just come out with their own uh, third party certified rhodiola finally because I'm like Dude, you guys got to start getting this stuff out here. So you have to in in physiology you're always playing a game, right? Um, you're playing a game of adaptation versus optimization. And those things are always counter to each other. So the thing that causes the most adaptation is not the thing that causes the most optimization in the moment, right? Um, whether your uh, inflammation is an easy example of this. If you minimized inflammation, you would die. If you maximize inflammation, you will die. So what you want to do is have these big spikes of inflammation and have them come crashing back down very quickly. Same thing with cortisol generally and most hormones. Um, if you extend that, or you minimize that, you're going to have problems. And so you need inflammation. That's the primary signaling me mechanism for adaptation. So whether you're talking about taking a cortisol modulator, whether you're talking about an anti-inflammatory, we're talking about an antioxidant, whether you're talking about something like a cold bath, you do any of these things um, immediately post-training where you have tried to stimulate oxidative stress, you've tried to induce inflammation, and you did that to signal all the mechanisms that kick off the signaling cascade to kick off the gene expression to induce physiological change. Okay, that's what has to happen. You go and blunt those things, and, and the research is very clear. Again, from the supplementation perspective, whether you're talking about um, the trials on like um, actually like anti-inflammatories um, to vitamin C, vitamin E combinations to cold water immersion, they all show the same thing: massively blunted training. Uh, sorry, massively blunted responses to physical training. So hypertrophy is the most obvious and recognized example. You see, you, you, will, you will blunt the hypertrophic response. You will attenuate it at worst uh, or at best and not see the same amount of results. Now, having said that, I'm not necessarily aware of one that's been done in ashwagandha um, nor rhodiola. I haven't seen those direct evidence. So theoretically, yeah, be concerned with that. However, I just told you I've been using rhodiola with athletes for a long time. It's effective. I've been using, I've used ashwagandha plenty of times. It's, it's super effective. Especially the, the example you gave, which was symptom mitigation. Well, now we're talking about optimizing for something totally different. So mm -hmm. if you're like, I don't care about growing muscle. I feel awful right now. Mm -hmm. just absolutely, who cares? You can't do it. You can. Definitely take it. 100% take it. Because you're also thinking, I feel so bad. I'm not training anyway. So if I feel like this, well, then obviously, Take it. Now, there's more and more research coming out on ashwagandha. Um, in general, I prefer rhodiola to ashwagandha for a, a number of reasons, but this is an area that, that needs more um, scientific evidence. In fact, and the reason I'm saying that is um, I'm also aware of, of data suggesting ashwagandha disrupted sleep quality. Um, more shows it helps, though. Mm. So I don't know if that was just like a weird study or what was happening there exactly. Um, so I don't, I don't use it as much, but in, I absolutely believe it. People who are highly symptomatic and they take it and you're like, I feel better. That's, that's just a, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a win there. So, um, just maybe tease dosages or, or play with different providers of it or play with different timing of it. Um, you don't want to walk around smashing anything that's going to modulate cortisol all the time. Uh, and so you don't want to be just guzzling down rhodiola all day. That, that's not a, it's not a great phase. Um, but if you want to use it for like a concentrated four weeks or something like that, uh, during a certain phases, 
maybe a good idea. Um, you want to tinker around with it a little bit. Um, I fully support those things. Uh, like I said, I'm actually interested and excited for more research to come out on ashwagandha specifically. Um, any of these herbals or roots, like th there's a lot here. These were all sort of woo-woo science just a number of years ago. Like, you know, only you weird practitioners and functional med people or whatever using them. And, and now there's more and more data coming out of them. The last thing I want to caution you on here, though, is um, some of the trepidation in the scientific community to use things like ashwagandha and, and rhodiola is warranted because the providers of them have traditionally been terrible. Um, so there is some conflicting evidence on the how tainted those supplements are, um, on how lack of actual active ingredients are in them. And so this is the, the classic saying of like, in theory, there's no, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Mm. Meaning to say, yes, there is good evidence on X amount of milligrams of thing, but can you actually get that at home? Now we've made jumps. Um, the same thing happens for vitamin D, by the way. The same thing happens for melatonin. Um, there, there are having a number of studies come out in a handful of years looking at um, the actual active dosages are five uh, to a thousand X what's actually listed in the bottle. This so is melatonin. And vitamin D. And vitamin D. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Vitamin D, the, the melatonin one is nasty because now you're yeah. taking like this is this melatonin is very, very actually you can't get here without a prescription. So in the UK, you can't oh, just no, go and buy it over the counter. No, you can't. And similarly, like I think the other one you can go and get over the counter in the US is DHEA. You can't, you can't do that here. So we have really yeah. strict, um, yeah, really strict guidelines. That one, that one always drives me nuts here. Like it doesn't drive me nuts, but like it blows me away. I know why. I actually know the technical reason, but you're like, all right, you can take this pro hormone, it's banned in all sports here it is clearly a performance it, it, you're taking one step in front of androsine dial and like you can just go buy this anywhere mm -hmm. amazon any drug like any store and athletes get in trouble for it constantly because they're like no, i bought they? this at walmart yeah constantly yeah i suppose if you walmart, can get it that easily like, then you can understand why yeah but we've also like been saying this for 100 years now right mm. like for, for years now we're like don't if it's not third-party certified, don't take it. Um, we actually, I actually have a review paper coming out somewhat soon on tainted supplements and cross-contamination uh, supplements. Um, so you'll have to look out for that in the next two or three months or something like that coming. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, any of these things, I, I guess maybe to reiterate all those things, um, major fan of, of, of uh, any supplement that works if used appropriately, but just buy them from highly reputable and the, the thing you want to look for there are what's called third-party certified. So in the States, that's either NSF or informed choice or something like that. Um, but you want to make sure they are third-party certified. And that certifies them against contaminants as well as sometimes that the active ingredient is in there in the, the, the listed dosage. Um, so pay more. Yes, They're going to be more expensive. Yeah, it's so it's worth, worth doing. If not, you're literally getting nothing. Or you're getting 10x or 100x or 500x what you think you're taking. Yeah, which is even more concerning. Totally. Um, potentially. Would you like a snapshot of where you are in your health journey right now with personalized advice from me on how to improve? Go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com and take my 60-second biohacking quiz and I will send you your free health score and personalized report with recommendations on each area of my SHIFT protocol for health optimization. SHIFT contains the five key pillars you need to focus on for optimal health. Sleep, hormones, insights to track, 
how to fuel your body with the right nutrition, light, hydration and breath work and training for your body and mind. Go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com to find out your score in each area and get personalized recommendations from me on how to improve. It takes less than 60 seconds and you can take the quiz as many times as you want to and track your improvement by following my guidance. Simply go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com to get started. With um, training, going back to training, so faster training, right? Uh, This is something I'm interested uh, to talk to you about, particularly in the context of women. I, I personally love to train faster in the morning. Um, I have heard you talk about the fact that, um, protein is very helpful post-training to, to help with muscle protein synthesis, but also actually to facilitate recovery. Um, can you kind of clarify, um, I've heard other practitioners talking about the fact that actually faster training isn't good for women, uh, and that that isn't great for hormones. And then there's some research that actually obviously exercise being a hormetic stress and inducing autophagy, that this can help faster training kind of amplifies the effects of things like the NAD salvage pathway. I personally do it because I enjoy it. And then I will try to, um, get some protein in and some carbs post-training as quickly as possible. One thing I have observed myself and with clients in my age, in their, in their forties, is that if you push that envelope too far and you do faster training and then say, I'll come back, I have a shower, I walk the dogs, I do the school run, I, I give my kids breakfast, I do the school run, and then I have breakfast. Actually, that seems to have an impact on my menstrual cycle and shorten it a bit, maybe because the stress is too high. What is the, what have you found? What does the science say? What should we be thinking about in terms of faster training and what we need to do for recovery and optimization? In general, it is a viable option. That is just another variable, uh, but it shouldn't be treated as anything more than that. And the reason I say it is there is no special benefit to it. You listed a couple of the best benefits. I like it better. My stomach feels better. It fits my schedule better. Great. It's totally viable. It is equally effective as training. You do not need to have, um, especially for the clients that you listed, there's no reason that you have to be fed or have to eat something prior to or during training. None. And there's clear enough evidence on that. There's also clear enough evidence that it's not going to do anything special for autophagy or fat loss or anything like that. Those studies have been run enough. Um, As in exercising fasting. So actually you get the same benefits. And yeah, terms of autophagy, if you've eaten versus when you're fasted. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. 100%. It ain't going to matter at all um, in, in terms of general global health. It's not going to improve. Uh, it's not going to mitigate cancer. We have no evidence to suggest it's going to do anything for like enhancing longevity or anything like that. Um, no, in the cellular health, it's not going to do anything. Um, if that may helps. It, now, the practical switch is, hey, I train better when I'm fasted. Well, great. You'll get better results because you're training better. Yeah. If that means you're more likely to do it or fit your, like all those things are awesome. And so the way that I want to express people with faster training again is like, if it makes your life easier, awesome. Great. If you hate it, don't do it. It's not that big a deal either way. You don't have to go out of your way to do it by any stretch, nor should you. You also don't have to worry about like forcing that banana down and in your stomach before you work out, if you're just like, oh my God, I feel terrible. If you like it and you feel better, um, amazing. I think it's going to be just fine. Um, whether it's same thing, token of like eating post-exercise, even if you train fasted, um, you don't have to worry about smashing that protein and carbohydrate in immediately afterwards. If it takes you 15 or 20 minutes or 30 or 
an hour, it's probably still even fine. Now, I probably wouldn't wait many more hours than that. But if you're just like, oh my gosh, I did this, mm. did this crazy session in the garage and like, uh, I can't eat right now. Okay, great. Give yourself a few minutes. It's going to be just fine. Like your body's pretty resilient. You're going to be totally fine. Just don't let it lead into exactly what you mentioned. Yeah, No, 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 yeah. stop there. Like we got to get some fuel in here first. Mm. Um, but yeah, totally viable option. Um, this is actually a good example of something I changed my uh, tune on. Um, you would ask me this question five years ago. I probably would have gone on a tirade about how it's going to reduce performance and et cetera. Um, that, that doesn't. Research, tons of tons of studies have come out. It just doesn't. It's, it, it's equally effective for fat loss. It's equally effective for everything else. Um, if you feel like it feels better, then uh, totally do it. Like, um, we don't go out of our way to ask people to do it very often. But if it's something that they like doing, then I don't go out of my way to change it very often either anymore. Hmm. Like very, very, really often. So generally people know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some of the folks I work with closely who are like still in like eight, five to six meals a day kind of people, um, they, some of them even train in the morning fasted because they're just like, I just, I'm not hungry in the morning and whatever. Like, I, I, okay, great. So yeah, entirely up to you, but uh, I would say, don't worry about feeling like you're leaving anything on the table physiologically by eating before or during your session either you're, you're fine either way either way it's good to know thank you for clearing that up and then finally then looking at in terms of longevity let's take someone they're not an athlete okay but they want to perform at the highest level they're busy so you can take <laughs> most women that fall into my category that have kids run businesses things like that they're going to mm-hmm. have a reasonably high allostatic load but you want to optimize mm-hmm. for longevity what would that program look like in terms of optimizing for strength, muscle mass, mm. cardiovascular health, anaerobic capacity, all of those things. What would, how much time should we be spending in things like zone two training, how much time lifting and what rep ranges? Uh, what would you say? Sure. So I'd say in general, for women, uh, this answer changes a little bit because again, one of the co- things we started the conversation with is you do need to account for bone mineral density. And so most men it is there, but like of all the people we've run through, like it's just, it's just very rarely a problem in men. And if it is, it's kind of minor with women. It's either not a problem problem or very large problem. So at least, you know, a huge chunk of them, like we got to account for it. Um, if you look at the things that are going to predict mortality overall, as well as you just take a look at physiology and you say, well, what are the tasks that my body needs to do to maximize longevity? I'm going to end up with a list that looks something like this, in my opinion. I think you should be able to perform continuous exercise with no break whatsoever for 45 minutes plus, right? Call this at, zone. At what, I don't at what level? Yeah. At what? I don't care. So, but that could be just going for a walk. That wouldn't totally. be particularly challenging. Totally. Okay. Yep. I think you should be able to, and the reason I'm saying this is you're probably like, well, that's, of course that's easy. Yeah. But you'll find a lot of 70 year olds who can't do that. Okay. Okay. But what about, so if you were optimizing, looking ahead, you're in your forties and you're thinking, I want to be a really fit 85, 90 year old, Mm -hmm. then what level of activity should you be able to sustain that exercise for 45 minutes? I'm going to get there. Okay. Okay. You're going to get there. Great. Again, what we're looking up here is, so here's what I'm doing. And I'm taking you to the end and saying, what do I want to do when I'm 90? And then I'll tell you how to get there. Okay, cool. Right. So you need, you're going to want to be able to move for 45 minutes straight with no breaks. Yeah. Right. Whether this is you're walking around at Disneyland with your kid, whether this is 
you know, gardening, whatever, whether you're, whether you're, you're, you're going to uh, exercise class at the, at the gym. So who cares, right? You're 90, you're out there training. 45 minutes, that takes tissue tolerance, which means your body has to be able to handle, and your joints have to be able to handle the movement nonstop for 45 minutes, okay? I don't care what particular intensity that is, but you should be able to do that without having to stop and go, oh, I need to take a break here. Like we're walking around the flowers, looking at flowers with your you know, granddaughter, and you're just like, oh, I gotta sit down, why? We're walking at a slow pace, why? Okay, great. So 45 minutes consecutive. Two, you need to be able to get your heart rate very, very, very high. This is the max capacity here. And then handle that, and then be, have, be able to bring that back down, and then probably repeat that again. Even at this, 90? Yes, 100%. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, 100%, right? Or, or what are you doing as an annual? You might be alive, but you're not going to be able to do, mm -hmm. you're not going to be the most, you said optimized, right? What's an optimized? Yeah, yeah optimized, exactly. You want to run up a flight of stairs. Totally, or whatever, right? Like you want to, you know, you have to walk up the stairs. You're just walking up there, but now you're 90, so now it's going to take you to max heart rate. Who cares, right? Um, we need to be able to lift things up overhead. You want to put your luggage in the uh, airplane over your head by yourself and not be that person slowing the whole train down and everybody's there, right? You want to be able to, to do other functional things like that. That's going to require strength. It's going to require strength, particularly in your lower body as well as grip strength. Um, and by the way, if you look at the research, all these things I'm mentioning uh, it stand out very clearly as independent predictors of mortality. So leg strength is extremely predictive of overall mortality. Grip strength is predictive. VO2 max is predictive uh, of mortality as well. And in fact, if you look at all the data, the data on this, um, in fact, I have right here, I haven't even taken it out of the box yet, uh, but my friend Peter Tia just came out with a cool I've book. I've got it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Really good. Um, does yours have a cool Outlet, signed yeah. thing? And then mine like doesn't mine have a signed thing. No, now you show it off. <laughs> Sorry, PowerPoint. Um, he goes through a ton of the stuff. You can see a lot of the stuff in there, but you're going to be able to want to be able to do that. Um, and then lastly, you want to make sure that you don't hurt yourself. And one of the biggest issues that older individuals deal with is breaking a hip. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, it's something like once you break a hip, life expectancy is like six months or something absurd like that. Um, that's not true. It's something crazy. Wasn't it like something like it's at least 30% you're more likely to die in the next 12 months, wasn't it? It's quite scary that you would something think it like would that. go up yeah. like that. It, it's a like scary terrifying. figure. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I it's awful. That. Like breaking your hip at 75 yeah. is a really scary problem. Mm. Why you, how you stop yourself from that is you have to have strength in your legs, but and you also have to have power. And the reason is if you trip or you're going to fall, you have to have the foot speed, uh, the balance, all these things like similar, right? So it's a balance issue. You lost your balance. Yes. Then two, you have to have the speed and power to get your foot out in front of you to be in the right position to stop that fall. Then you have to have the eccentric strength to brace it and stop from landing. So balance is there, coordination, speed and power, and then strength are all there. And so now like these are the things you have to do. So when you back calculate the training program to get there, you have to make sure that you're in a position where your joints are not extremely compromised, right? So you, you don't want to lose balance. Um, the way that we want to work on balance is, um, in fact, if you look at, I'm jumping, I'm going a little bit sideways, we'll come right back. Uh, my friend Tommy Wood had a paper come out really recently um, looking at uh, delayed onset Parkinson's um, and, um, or delayed onset uh, Alzheimer's and um, dementia. And one of the things he found is like there's six independent factors that 
um, are best at preventing those things. And they're, they're including things like physical exercise, of course, um, social connection, brain games. And then one of the other things he found was proprioception. And the biggest connection he had to that was nature. And people are sort of say that all the time. And you're like, well, why isn't being out in nature so important? Well, one of the reasons is because in order for your body to continue to maintain optimal balance over time, it needs to be challenged proprioceptively. And typically when you walk out in nature, you're not on flat concrete anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking up, you're looking down, you're looking out in front of you, the landscape is moving and changing inside. And so you're, you're continuing to maintain your, your proprioception and your understanding of changing environments. There's a smell, right? The smell is out there. There's a light, there's a sound. All these are changing. When you're typically in your office all day, every single day, you have very few stimuli. By getting out in the natural world, now all those are, are changing. And so my biggest recommendation for maintaining balance over time is that out in nature when you can and or pick a sport or activity that is not controlled and linear. In other words, like the treadmill and lifting weights is not enough. So like tennis be would be a good thing. Sure. Whether you're mm -hmm. reacting to something else like tennis is fantastic or pickleball or surfing or jujitsu or like any number of other things where you have to react to an external stimuli, right? That is a fantastic way. So when we're looking through like a global health program, I'm looking for something that checks that box of, am I responding to the world somehow and then adjusting my body as quickly as I can? Do you think there's okay. any benefit? Peter Atiyah talks about rucking, so he'll put something on his back. Like sometimes I'll go out with a weighted vest. Do you we'll, think there's we'll, extra benefit? We'll get benefits there next. We'll get there, okay. Yeah, because you're not really reacting down. a ton to the world mm -hmm. there. You are a little bit walking up and down, but you're not really adjusting to anybody coming in like you would in tennis. That ball's coming quickly. You have to sprint two steps and hit rucking, you're walking. So I'm not doing it there. So check number one, am I reacting to the world in some form or fashion there? Check number two, we have to be able to maintain energy output over a long period of time. Enter your rucking. Do you want to ruck? Fine. Um, I don't worry about zones. I, I'm, I'm like not nearly as concerned about zone two as Peter, like not even in the same okay. stratosphere as concerned with him. Um, my general rule of thumb is, can you do this thing nasal only breathing? So if you can close your mouth and breathe only through your nose, then I don't, I don't care what heart rate. Yeah, for, for most That's people, really so. interesting you say that because I was going to ask you about that just while we pause there. Nasal only breathing. Mm -hmm. I seem to be able to maintain that and my heart rate go up quite significantly. And yet yep. I've heard people say, actually, nasal only breathing is going to keep you in zone two. It doesn't. No, no, no. I know some people who can do nasal only at 95% heart rate. Yeah. Yeah. The opposite. It, typically, if you're doing a, a smaller activity and you're getting extremely high heart rate with that, um, you're probably very inefficient with your nose. And so I would say continue to do that. And what you'll notice is your heart rate will go way down uh, okay. over that. Okay. And you'll notice that. So you probably have a difficult time actually getting in air through your nose. And that's why your body's going. Oh, so the heart rate's going up. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. It's probably yep. allergies, maybe. Yeah. Or, or you're just not particularly good at it. I'm just or... not good at nasal breathing. Mm -hmm. Could be. But you'll get there. But I enjoy it, you see, because if I go out for a nasal-only breathing yeah. run, I come back in that kind of zen-like meditation state. Yeah, yeah. It's very chilled. Yeah. 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 It could be a CO2 tolerance issue too. So you'd have to, you'd have to sort of tinker. But mm. um, yeah, that stuff's fine. Um, 
uh, Ruck is, is fine. I know he's, he's super into it. Uh, Andrew's super into it. Like, whatever. Um, that's, that's great. Like, I'm never going to complain with people getting outside and moving around. So, And with the zone two, you mentioned there before we move on that you're not as concerned. I have to say, like, three hours of zone two a week feels quite boring to me. You, yep. you don't feel that's that necessary because I, I rather do things at high intensity and kind of have fun and move on. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, I don't think it is. I, I think we have under appreciated the need to move at a low intensity mm-hmm. very much. So I'm totally fine with this big push to get people to move at a lower intensity for longer. Absolutely fine. Um, but I don't think you need three hours of of zone two. Um, I think that's actually an exchange for a lot of things that you should be getting in your life anyways. So, um, well, what concerned me around it is I will walk at below the target where he's talking about yeah, with my dogs shit. for an hour a day. So I'm getting seven hours, but I'm not pushing it to the edge of where he's saying. And so then I'm like, uh, right, well, then I have to do that. I have to create an incline to actually get that. That means spending three hours like on a treadmill or something, which I don't have time for. Yeah. Well, uh, so that, that, that's why I think, um, in your case, you're being a little bit too literal with the numbers, right? <laughs> the concept is like, hey, yo, you should be moving at sub-maximal. That's mm-hmm. more than rest. And you need to be doing that. It, it, just go back a little bit and think, why? Why do I need zone two? What, what, why, why like physiology or millions of years of evolution do I need zone two? We used to walk, right, for endurance, for miles, for camps. Sure. We used to move. Yeah, we used to That's move. That's the thing, right? So all, you're, all you're doing is trying to replace the two. And why does it have to be between 133 beats and 147? Yeah, exactly. Beats? That's total nonsense, right? It's like it's just mm-hmm. a, it's just a rough number to like give you like a somewhat calibration, right? That's what um, I was really looking at. Is it is it is it scientifically driven or is it just to get people to move? It's well, it's it's both, right? But here's the deal: Do you know what your max heart rate is? Roughly. Oh, I do actually. I've got it because I have my VO2 done recently. Okay, great. Well, so. then your zone two is based on that. Mm-hmm. It's nothing else. So you go back and calculate your own zone two. You might be in your own zone two. Yeah. So unless you know your own max heart rate, then there are no zones for you yet. Those are just like super, super, super rough ideas of basically it's trying to be like, yo, this is like more than just doing nothing, but not, not high intensity stuff. Um, one thing I will say is I do think it's important for people to do things besides just high intensity training. For your overall health, it is, and I think it's very important to do sub-maximal longer duration stuff. Just don't get too caught up in those specific numbers. Like it, it is what it is. If you're walking an hour a day, every day, like you're fine. Like I, I'm not, I'm, that box is checked in my opinion, especially if you're doing most of it nasal only. I'm, I'm totally fine. Mm. Like you're, you're, I'm, I'm off the board there. You clearly can produce 45 minutes of consecutive work at a lower intensity. Your cardiovascular system is going to be fine there. Um, you want to double check it, go for a super light jog for 30 minutes and check your heart rate. My guess is it's going to be pretty chill. Hmm. you're gonna be just fine all right so i don't i don't get like nearly as caught up in those things um i i know the data are coming from i totally get it but here's what i can say is i'm an actual science i'm an actual scientist this is my world um we need to move more at a lower intensity and and it's not just like standing standing is not going to get you there like your standing desk is cool but like that's not going to be enough. Yeah, it's not going to get you from... there. Although I no. think for mums, you are getting it because you're running around all day, right? I might stand here. Have you ever done an activity tracker on a mom? Yeah, it's hard. It's mine, bananas. Mine's, mine's crazy. Yeah, exactly. And I only bananas. stand, to be honest, because I get back pain if I sit. Oh, no. I, I have like standing sitting. Right. Like, so, it, my yeah. mind goes up. I go up and down all day. I'm not oh, against okay. them at all. 
Yeah. I'm just trying to be like, oh, I stand, so I don't need to. to yeah, do my no, that's too. not true. It's true. No, not at all. You're not going to get it. No, like my my wife doesn't do a ton of zone two. Uh, we we're telling us telling you, like I have a three and a five year old. Um, and then she, prior to that, she spent 16 years as a, um, preschool special ed teacher. So like she, her caloric intake, despite the fact she's 45 pounds smaller than me, and she's 20 kilos smaller than easy or more, um, her caloric intake is always higher than mine because her, or like her, her, her she, she's burning thousands of calories a, a day, um, in basal activity. And I'm not right. I'm, I'm generally mm-hmm. like training arm right here so i have to go out of my way to like move around the world create it no, she yeah, didn't have that to makes sense. so it depends I've on what you're doing the flexibility is better as well like when i was doing a lot of the metrics you know when you look at like the toddler squat and i can still oh, yeah, like yeah. you know just go straight down touch sure. like my like bum to heels because in reality like how much time i spent years like playing on the floor with the kids do you know what i mean totally. and getting up and down totally. i think women have a bit of an advantage in many respects if you're the carer right it might be that the dad's doing it but oh, yeah, i do yeah, think yeah. there's a lot of benefits to young children Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can call it that. Um, yeah, so you want to get that stuff in. You want uh, to kind of rehab. You want some balanced stuff in. You want some sustained effort all day. Now, the one thing I will say is just to cap this one, the thing about like um, moving physically around, like with the kid example, you're going to get a lot of movement in, but that's still not continuous, unstopped movement. And that's still a thing you need mm-hmm. to get in. Right. So even if that's one day a week where you do your, you know, 45 minute hike or something like that or, or whatever, like, that's that's totally good. Um, you need to do Max Hari stuff at least once, preferably two to three times a week, where you're getting up to a max heart rate. Um, don't really care what that is. And do do whatever you want, but get it up to there two to three times a week. Um, by the way, you need both of those to maximize your VO2 max. Mm-hmm. That continuous steady state stuff, as well as your interval things. So um, if you want to do it more than four three days a week. Uh, okay, I'll allow it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna start paying attention to some things more to make sure that you're really handling it well. Um, obviously, our pro athletes do it with 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 no issues whatsoever. Um, especially our our UFC fighters, like no issue with that whatsoever. Um, getting it there, but that's that's a unique example. Those are more of the. Outliers, and how many right? intervals so, are they doing that? When you talk about getting the max heart rate up, are you talking about doing this for three to six intervals and coming back down, sure. or? Yeah, it doesn't right. matter. It could be one, okay. right? Oh, okay. So it could be, it's just a case of reaching and, it. Totally. So you're going to go out and you're going to do a five minute, you know, sprint on a, on an assault bike. Amazing. That's great. You want to do like a, a spin class. Oh, great. You're going to probably get reach heart max heart rate there a couple of times, if not more. Um, you want to do any number of like circuit training or kettlebell. Like, great, great. I, it doesn't really matter. Get it up once, get it up twice, get it up a bunch. Um, it, it's got to touch that though, at least once. And that's why this is what allows you, by the way, to do it like four to five times a week or whether it's more like, yo, one is good. Yeah. So if it was a long, hard one, mm. one is maybe good, but if it's just a little, like one-time touch, you could do that multiple times. You could do it multiple Easy. times. And what about when you look at like some of the research and it talks about enhancing VO2 max by doing this, like four minutes on four minutes off, because then you're not getting to as well i suppose you are getting to as high heart rate because you're doing it for longer right so it's going to push the heart rate up um whereas when you're going really really intense for a short period so both Mm -hmm. of those are going to optimize for vo2 max coupled with either one's fine zone two yeah yeah and this is like uh we typically say one-to-one ratio 
So you want to go four minutes max effort, four minute off. That's one to one work rest ratio. Um, those are in the old days, you just call those one mile repeats or 800 meter repeats. Yeah. Right. Like, like in track, like, that's fine. Um, uh, you know, so like, great. You want to do 30 on 30 off. Awesome. You want to do 30 on 90 seconds off. Right. Like it doesn't really matter. doesn't matter. And, no, you, you can, th- there's enough evidence to show all those are viable options, all of them. So you, you can do combinations. That's typically what we do, by the way, is like combinations of these different ones. Um, one minute on, one minute off, like absolutely fine. The key with all that stuff is you got to, like when you're on, uh, but you're the, on. the longer the break, the, the harder you have to work during the set. Mm-hmm. The shorter the break, the harder it is sometimes to get to max heart rate because you, you just, you're just hanging on there. Um, the, there. There's a lot of nuance to these things. They are training slightly different things, but all of them are viable options. Um, so for the average person, I generally recommend having a variety so you don't get too, you know, quote unquote bored um, of each one of them. You can even do 20 second sprints. Where, where do you want to be? It depends if you're running, if you're on a bike, if you're cycling on a bike, it, it's not as hard. Um, if you're sprinting in the real world, you're going to reach a higher uh, max heart rate, much higher if you're sprinting in the real world than if you are sitting there spinning a bike. Mm-hmm. And now you go to something like an assault bike. And now that's going to be a little bit closer because your arms are there and there's resistance. So um, hard to reach a max heart rate in 20 second sprint on a bike with light resistance. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to put the resistance yeah, up pretty high, yeah, which yeah, is totally fine. Yeah. So you want to go light on the pedal, then you got to go probably three or four minutes yeah. or whatever, depending on what you're doing. So hard to get there. Um, and the last thing to sort of round it out, you, you need to do something that addresses uh, some muscle muscle gain, muscle hypertrophy, and then muscle strength. So for, for the average person, um, this is, uh, you know, two to four times a week lifting weights. Um, you need that for your bone mineral density. Ideally, there is some sort of impact in landing occasionally for bone mineral density, but it's axial loading primarily. And your, your reps and sets, um, you know, you, you get to play between sets of, you know, one rep at a time to up to 20, 25. And I would generally recommend some spending some time in the one to eight reps per set range, and then spending some time in the eight plus range. And and you could do this. You could split those up, you know, in the day, you could split those up different days per week. You could split this up in like different months or phases of training. Um, you You can really do this in a number of different combinations, but do something in the lower rep range to challenge strength and tension. This is also what's going to be important for connective tissue and joint integrity and health that you need for bone marrow density. And then the higher rep range is going to change. Uh, it's going to eventually start getting into mitochondrial uh, benefits. It's going to start getting into muscular endurance, also very good for joint health and will also drive muscle hypertrophy. Um, not very much strength, but you'll get a lot of hypertrophy. So that's how you're going to give yourself a nice, well-rounded um, in fact, it's important lastly to do some of those things at the lower rep range, because that's the only way you're going to get close to power. So you got to mm. move fast and powerfully to get that power stuff in your foot. So, and the power is the fastest thing to go, right? If you look at how, yeah, how fast you can like move and sprint compared to when you're at school, it's very speed, different. speed for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sp- speed is what drops off first. And I'm so big as a function, as a proxy, that power goes yeah. strength holds on a lot longer. For sure, yeah. but speed is going to go quickly as you age. And for women as well, like I've heard some practitioners talk about the fact that actually you need to focus more on strength as estrogen's dropping, and you know, doing these more endurance reps have reps have less of an effect. But it sounds from what you're saying, actually, you want to be doing everything. You want to be doing some strength and periodizing your training, doing some muscular endurance, some hypertrophy. 
Yeah, but you could do them at different times of the month if you want. That, 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 that'd be fine if you wanted to do different. Uh, again, you could, you could periodize those. So, so hey, say you focus on one thing for six weeks and then switch your strategy for the next six-week block. That's great. Yeah. You'd also do them day by day. So different phase on Monday, different phase on Wednesday, different emphasis on Friday. Those are, you know, first one's more of a classic linear periodization. The second one's more of a classic undulating, daily undulating periodization. And you if you do them, it like that, do you not see any difference? Like say, for example, people just get bored, right? So they're like, one day I'm going to go in and I'm going to do strength sets. And the next day, a few days later, I'm going to go and I'm going to do 10 to 12 reps, for example. You don't notice any difference in results between somebody who says, actually, I'm going to go and do a block of eight weeks of strength versus that other modality. Yeah, there's a, there's a decent amount of evidence on this. And they're both very effective. Interesting. Yeah, the more you focus on one particular thing, the more uh, focus you get on that. The detriment, though, you're not doing anything else. Yeah, you lose them. And muscle yeah. mass and size, right, is important for glucose metabolism. So you don't just well, want to focus on strength. Yeah, but uh, you focus on strength, you're, you're still going to be fine there because it's going to be enough to drive enough muscle mass on most people. And the biggest thing is you're causing a whole bunch of contraction of skeletal muscle which is going to then demand a whole bunch of glucose. So you're going to be right. totally fine. So actually you're going to be fine. Differentiating those. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that too much. You're training muscle, you're going to be fine. Uh, unless you're really under-muscled. Yeah. But but you should you're be just fine. Get the benefits. Hmm? Cool. And uh, I know that Peter talks in the book about the fact that you really want to be optimizing in your 40s and 50s for an elite VO2 max. Uh, he mm-hmm. seems to use a tougher table in there than I've seen uh, on the internet. Uh, if you really want to go in fit because you're fighting, mm-hmm. right? The You're fighting against the clock. It's going the other way. Uh, just curious for your thoughts on that. Do you think someone who's maybe listening to this and they're looking at the VO2 max in their 40s and they're thinking, shit, I should have done something a bit quicker. Can they make those gains if they really pay attention uh, at that age oh, yeah. to, to make enough of an improvement? Yeah, super trainable. VO2 max is, is very, very trainable. Um, we, we've done a number of studies in this. Um, one of them in particular, um, Peter Mead put this in his book, I'm not sure. But um, we did a study in Stockholm, Sweden with a bunch of 90-year-old cross-country skiers. So these were world champions in the 1940s and 50s, and they were continuing to race uh, in their 80s and 90s. And their VO2 maxes were in the, the mid-30s, um, in, in some cases even crossing into the 40s. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's, that's milliliters per kilogram per minute, right? Yeah. Um, now, those were obviously a combination of nature and nurture, right? So you're talking about probably born genetically elite mm-hmm. and also trained for, in this case, literally 60 years of, of continuous training, right? Um, but nonetheless, it, it's not crazy. Um, and we see this happen. We, we have hundreds of, of studies showing improvements in VO2 max with 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds. Like This is not particularly um, difficult to continue to see improvements there. But yeah, you definitely want to start pushing there, what Peter's referring to is the fact that once you drop, once you cross that 40-ish range, you do start to see drops in VO2 max every single year in general. But more recent data have actually come out to show the vast majority of performance drops with aging are directly tied to reductions in training. Right. Such so as to say that like, if you continue to train, um, then the drops in physical performance, um, they're still going to go. You're never going to see a 75-year-old as strong as a 25-year-old on average, right? That's not going to happen, but you can greatly blunt the detriment in, in loss of physical ability with training. That's awesome to know. 
and a yep. great note to finish on. Thank you so much um, for coming on the show. Are there any last points you want to share before we link to where people can find you more about your work? How can people keep up with the science that you're publishing as well? Yep, sure. Uh, Instagram and, and Twitter, Dr. Annie Galpin are um, the best places. And of course, uh, I, I don't do much active work on there, but my website is kind of a link to all things hubs. And any of the companies that I sort of talked about are of interest, they're all on there somewhere. So this is a website I manage myself about once a year. So it's on there. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been, uh, it's been fun and you've given me a lot of food for thought. Uh, and I'm sure you've inspired many of the listeners too. So thank you very much, Andy. All right, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance. If you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep, nutrition, fitness, and resilience in the top link in the show notes below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe for more.